Welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over 1 million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. My guest today is Sharma Dean, one of the most inspiring serial entrepreneurs I've ever met. We met a few years ago on a panel discussion. Since then, she's been a Gusto customer and I've been blown away by her purpose to empower women using technology and business as a force for good. When at university, she launched a hip-hop magazine and right after launched WA, her nail salon, and created this hugely aspirational brand which she ran for 10 years. Then she consolidated her learning to launch a marketplace, Beauty Stack, raising capital for the first time. Today in this episode, Sharma Dean will talk about how Oprah and her parents gave her a can-do attitude, how she's dealt with burnout and also COVID-19, and how she keeps on reinventing herself by learning super fast. Sharmadine, I can't wait to talk about your positive mission and how you are finding it to scale Beauty Stack. Um, but before we speak about your purpose and your business, tell me where you grew up and how it was like. Ooh, my favorite topic, my hometown. So <laughs> I grew up in Wolverhampton, which is a small city um, in the middle of England, right in the center. It was very industrial. You know, you really saw the change of industry, like leap coming and going from the city, heavily affected by move away from manufacturing. But it had pockets of culture. It had a really vibrant music scene. I loved the town park, the library. There was a lot of nature around things to do. Like, I absolutely loved it. And I really think it made me who I am today as a person. And how was your family like? I come from a huge Jamaican family. Mm -hmm. Sadly, my grandmother passed away recently and she Sorry. is like, you know, my grandmother and grandfather have 13 children. I have wow. like 70 cousins, about 40 great grand cousins. And I absolutely loved my busy, noisy Jamaican household. It was like really supportive, <laughs> really encouraging. And again, not just being in the house, but my family was very involved in the local church. And it was almost like I had an additional family at church, like another 200 Jamaicans who would be looking out for me, telling me I was bright, that I could go places, that I had every opportunity. Um, you know, so I never, I think about this often because I never ever felt like I couldn't do anything like I was definitely surrounded by people that indulged in my kind of curiosity and precociousness for sure. Amazing. So you've got this huge kind of encouragement, can do attitude, positivity from your family and kind of your upbringing. That's really definitely. powerful. And when kind of did you for the first time think about business? I have been curious about business from a really, really, really young age. I firstly through the medium of products and media, if I'm honest. So, for example, I remember being five years old and getting cable TV for the first time. I remember, it, you know, a really gorgeous black sky box mm -hmm. with like red lettering, like super 80s, 90s, um, like red, you know, digital lettering. And I remember thinking this company has changed my life. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I wasn't like thinking that sky magically dropped from the sky. I was thinking, wow, like cable, this is insane. You know, there were literally like not hundreds, but definitely more than three or four channels that were on terrestrial TV at the time. 
And I actually learned a lot more about American culture through cable. And obviously America is very much like American dream. You can make it rags to riches, <laughs> like hustler. Whereas British culture was the opposite. It was like, stay in your lane. Don't get above your station. <laughs> Who do you think you are? So I grew up from age five watching Oprah who was one of the biggest influences on me, uh, you know, as, as a young girl, because I remember seeing the credits to her chat show and she was dragging along the word Harpo and it said Harpo Productions, which is Oprah backwards. And I remember mm. thinking she owns that company. Like she owns the company. That's amazing. So you know, a combination of watching American movies and TV, chat show hosts, MTV and like VH1 and just seeing constant culture, commerce, products, medium and then buying magazines. I was just really always looking for the stories of business and ownership, but within culture. You know, it wasn't like I was never reading about, for example, like someone like Richard Branson not until I was much later, like older. When I was younger, I was looking at culture, like ownership through culture. And that was like hugely influential to me. Really fascinating. Um, so I grew up in Germany, but I watched exactly the same shows, you know, The Simpsons, Cosby Show, Oprah. And, totally, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Cosby Show now, now in hindsight, I guess um, we got to reevaluate. But, um, you know, I, I massively looked up to US culture and I ended up in the US when I was 16, going to high school for a year. So, yeah, ma massively inspired by kind of the entrepreneurial mindset. Um, it's very similar. Did you have family members doing anything entrepreneurial? Yeah, when I was younger, one of my aunties, um, auntie valerie who was gemini as well because there was just like you know everyone would always be like oh you're a gemini you're this you're that and there are only two gemini's in my giant family <laughs> and me and auntie valerie were one of them and incidentally we were both the most entrepreneurial and she had a caribbean food store and i remember like all my aunties working there including my mom like going there after school seeing the customers and like you know taking the rubbish out the back and all of that type of thing and she was the only one really she actually moved to america about 10 years ago which is following on from what we were just talking about and now she has a business in texas but mm. my family are definitely more community driven so they have you know my family set up soup kitchens they're like elders in the church they do a lot of missionary work and you know, either in nursing or social care, a little bit in technology and like digital media. But ultimately, I think my social impact and my care of the wider world and community and also just generally being a citizen comes mm. a lot from my family, which I think if you can merge that social impact with a stable commercial business, I think like that's what for me has always been the goal. Yeah, super powerful. And I've always admired you for your purpose-driven kind of business, um, but I never understood what fueled it. And so now I'm kind of adding the puzzle pieces. Um, I love the community piece and the values uh, you got from your family. And then I think you ended up studying art and design. So how did you get from thinking about business and entrepreneurship, US culture, to art and design? No, I was always thinking about art and design first. That was the thing that got me in, like, I was obsessed with fashion and art and music. And from the age 12, I knew I wanted to go to Central St. Martins and study fashion. It's just that I always thought the lens of fashion was more interesting through looking at it by business. Like when Business of Fashion launched, I thought that is so clever because even when I was younger, I would read Vogue. Like an article I really remember as a teenager, probably about 14 reading in Vogue, was an article about all of the different fashion houses and who owned who. So it was like LVMH owns these brands and Caring owns these brands, mm. etc. And, you know, in the whole magazine, that's the article I remember as a teen because I was like, I loved yeah. the breakdown and the, the breakdown of how an industry works and also like illuminating information that was previously behind closed doors, you know. So that's kind of like what I was interested in. And I also was obsessed with reading 
in the newspaper. So when I was 14, my first job was working in a, a hotel as a like chambermaid and then a waitress. And it was a Sunday lunch restaurant. So then I would take all the Sunday papers home. I loved reading the Sunday Times. And, my, you know, my mum was like, why are you a snob reading that paper? <laughs> <laughs> but I just found it so fascinating being like London. You know, you think about the Sunday Times and it's like the heart of the city and the heart of power. And that's where I wanted to be. So I plotted out my journey to Central St. Martins. I ended up moving to London when I was 19 to do that degree, did the degree. And the whole way through the degree, I actually worked the whole time that I was a student. Mm. Combination of like not coming from a rich background, having to work. But also I worked within the fashion industry because I was just so curious for more information and more information. So that by the time I graduated, I was very embedded in the industry in a way that my classmates weren't because I'd been working in it for four years. So yeah, that that was... I'd always loved style, culture, you know, however you want to call it, but always curious about the inner workings and the business models behind, you know, the biggest drivers. I, I believe culture is like more important for ideology than just anything else. You know what I mean? Like you and I have both said that we've watched these TV shows. So like movies have defined who we are today and I always think whoever's in power has the choice about the movies that gets made, right? So it's like, how do we get more movies that show, for example, strong female characters so that another girl in 20 years time will feel even more confident to go and start a business? Like, that's what interests me. Really fascinating. And was that the reason you started your hip hop magazine out of uni? Yeah, I never thought of it like that. because. I'm the kind of person, right, who it's only upon self-reflection that I can piece all the things together <laughs> about why I've done what I've done or why I'm the way I am. Because in the moment, I act quite impulsively. And it's only with age that I'm like, this is the right strategic thing to do. Do you know what I mean? Mm, when I was totally, young, I was yeah. just like, when I was 20, when I first started that magazine, I think I was 20, so 21 15 years ago now I'm 36 and like all I wanted to do was talk about women in hip-hop in a way that I didn't think what they were being talked about which was they contribute to hip-hop culture they're just as talented in the four areas of hip-hop in graffiti breakdancing DJing you know and rapping that they were not always naked they were not always the boyfriend, the, the girlfriend of the DJ, and that they had a, a place in that world. And that's what I was obsessed with. So I did a fanzine for girls in hip hop called Wah. And I did one issue, because making a magazine is really hard work, you know. <laughs> so I can only imagine. I really, I really respect people, you know, who do that. And essentially, it's what I'm going back to, you know, in my next move. But like, I made one issue a year for five years. And then when I graduated and I started traveling around the world and seeing different retail concepts and earning money, that's when I started the nail salon, which was called WAR because I'd already built this community of girls through the zine. But it was really about being or doing the change that I wanted to see. That's always been like a running theme through my work. If no one's going to do it or I don't feel there's a satisfying enough proposition for something I think should exist, I'll just try and do it myself. Oh, really powerful and um, really funny, like culturally how similar we are. I'm, I'm also 36 and everyone in my neighborhood got inspired by the Flying Steps, which is like a Berlin-based um, breakdance crew. And every <laughs> single person thought they could rap and breakdance and so on. And I'm sure it was like the most embarrassing thing in the world, but it was just so, so zeitgeist. And everyone loved it and had a great time. Okay, so you focused on the on the magazine and then how did you shift to your first business 
it was just completely selfish and what I wanted to see. I was at the time a up and coming stylist getting paid more money than I had in my life. It's a bit like a finance person when you graduate and become a consultant and you're like, this is great. <laughs> I'm earning loads of money and I'm busy. And, you know, I was in that kind of like second year post-graduation, like high flying life. Mm. And then I got my nails done and I wanted them done in this very particular style, which was double French. So like a French tip on the tip of your nail and a moon on the bottom of your nails. And getting it done was such a palaver Mm -hmm. that I was so angry. And that when I went back to the car, I like slammed the door and I told my then boyfriend, I'm going to open my own salon one day. And then that was just before Christmas. And I got the first version of it open in mid-March. Wow. So I essentially got four or five girls together to paint artistic nails. So inspired by like the fashion collections in a gym, in Frame Studio. Do you remember Frame? Yeah, Um, absolutely. Love that place. Yeah. So it was Frame's first location. And it was like... What I love about my um, life in London is all the women who I have grown with, like it was Frame's first studio and they were looking for like activations and I was looking for a space and then it just happened like that. Wow. Yeah, it was really cool. So then um, I did that. We found the premises and then we opened up properly July the 1st, 2009. And I did not have a clue how to start a business. I had never run a business before. I'd only ever been like a consultant or a stylist looking after myself. I was really organized in my work. But when it came to consumer facing businesses, it was just like, as I'm sure you well know, like, Mm. crazy town. Um, (laughs) And I just had to learn on the job. And to be honest, I thought that I could just have this little shop that would I could go and get my nails done for free. Mm-hmm. I didn't think it was going to be a huge global, like I didn't have a pitch. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? I mm-hmm. was just like, oh, I just, I'm going to open the coolest nail salon ever. You can come and get your hair done and your nails done and buy clothes and magazines. And, you know, it really wasn't like I was selling it to everyone as a business. I was more selling it as like a place to come and hang and be yourself. And it just really resonated. And within literally like the first few weeks, we had articles in the New York Times and the Independent. It was like crazy. But again, when I look back, I can see all of the logical steps in how I built that early community, how I kept it interesting, how I used technology to really scale more like digital media rather than pure technology to really like scale our brand, really strategic things that like at the time I just was trying everything, um, you know, is what made WAR like a really special and famous place. Yeah, and I think you also massively developed this this voice, um, this attitude and, you know, stood for more than just beauty. And I think, you know, as an outsider, it feels like an incredibly powerful kind of brand you created. Well, I think that stems from the fanzine, right? Because it always had its roots in like hip hop. The way I used to describe it was we were very punk attitude, but with a hip hop aesthetic because we were very like, we were very punk in terms of the true essence of like DIY, creating spaces for yourself. Like I've always, you know, coming from fashion school, especially been obsessed with like subcultures and, you know, post-war subcultures in Britain, especially for me, the DIY attitude of punk, especially in terms of like British culture is what I felt was very core to our spirit. However, we were more glossy. It wasn't about a grungy, punky look. It was more like an aspirational hip hop culture tells you you can make money you can be anybody it's very much like what black people do is celebrate all of their opportunities positivity through the language of music and art and i was like yeah we're we're a punk attitude hip hop aesthetic but always about moving 
towards gender equality. And totally interestingly, when I first started WA magazine, if anyone's got the first issue, because it actually stands for We Ain't Hoes. So I had this list, very declarative manifesto, um, which was very typical teenage style. I was like, we ain't this, we ain't that, we ain't blah, blah, blah. But I put in it, we ain't feminists. And somebody wrote me a letter. It was a famous hip-hop photographer called Martha Cooper. She's like a proper OG from the Bronx, you know. (laughs) And she sent me a letter, an email, and she said, Sharmadine, you are exactly a feminist. Do you know what a feminist is? I was like, actually... I was like, actually, I don't, you know, it was just like (laughs) post 90s laddie, ladette culture. It was like feminism was branded really badly, right? So it's changed massively. Yeah, that's a good point. Huge. So I spent, and this is why I prioritize education and information over everything, because in those early years of war, I did so much reading around gender studies and started to actually understand like the theory behind the spirit of what I was doing. So when you say that, you know, my brand has always stood for something else, it's because I was constantly educating myself behind the scenes and using that in my work. Like I love the constant flow of theory to practice, theory to practice, theory to practice. So like for me, War Magazine was a personal journey for me to actually understand what it is that women need in their community and from their spaces. And then when I had the nail salon, I could actually put that into action. So I was thinking about women's centres, around how young millennial women don't have anywhere to go unless they're a mum. When you're a mum, you can go to a children's center or a library and connect with other mums but let's say that you're like 24 25 you don't want to go raving and drinking all the time you don't want to be in a restaurant all the time because you can't really hang out in restaurants like where do you go and I was like there's definitely a role in the community for a space for women and the nails was just a way to get them through the door you know Mm. what I mean Mm. that's how I thought about it later on when I started to realize like how impactful the salon was because we used to like hold fundraisers, let different community groups use the space after closing. It was really important to me again, going back to the citizenship, like it's like my version of my auntie's soup kitchen, you know? Wow. So you turned from passion project to purpose powerhouse. And at what point in the journey did you feel like you're actually building a business? Did it one day kind of occur to you, oh my God, like, you know, I need to professionalize this and, you know, acquire some business skills. And how did you think about that? Well, in the first few years, I was still actually trying to do two jobs, which was I was still doing my consulting and my styling for like big brands like Nike and ASOS. Mm. And I was like popping in and out of the business, but I could tell that I needed to elevate it to actually fulfill the expectations of what people thought we were as a brand. Like our brand was so strong, but the business, it's just a tiny business. And to be honest, it always was because I quickly learned that the economics of a salon means you can never truly make like a crazy profit. You can make a healthy profit, which would fund like the lifestyle of the salon owner. Do you know what I mean? But it wasn't like a scalable business unless you developed products. And um, I just wasn't that interested in products. I wasn't interested in making nail polish, for example. And when I finally did make nail polish, we did a product line with boots. It was almost like a bit too late in the trend. And I just didn't enjoy the cycle of you have to put 20 products on the shelf because that's how retail mechanics work. Do you know what I mean? Like I didn't enjoy the cycle of retail. Like for example, you know, when it's Valentine's day for the first few years after I stopped doing the products, I was like, Hey guys, it's Valentine's Day and we don't have to think of a gimmicky campaign to sell more red nail polish. Isn't that fun? I just didn't, (laughs) you know, I didn't enjoy that hamster wheel of promoting a product, which to be honest, any manufacturer could make, you know what I mean? It's all brand. 
so I did it for a couple of years and I learned a lot from it and actually what I learned is I'm not very interested I like the product development and creative process but I don't like the merchandising the selling the like you know looking at a product P&L so then I was basically going through a bit of a life crisis right because I'd set it up when I was 25 I had a baby when I was 26 I never wanted to be a full-time shopkeeper I was really also sad I never like could find time to do a master's degree I was going through a breakup I was just like quite and all but the demand was so high we would get like hundreds of emails a week being like can you do an event a pop-up nail bar in Tokyo like in three weeks could you go to moscow and do a pop-up nail bar could you go to the abu dhabi grand prix and do a pop-up nail bar like you know we want this interview we never pitched for like any business during that year apart from working with topshop and working with boots those were the only things that i was like i kind of have to do a bit of work here everything else just came so naturally and I was just burnt out because I felt like I was riding a wave that I was not in control of because everyone just loved it. Even now, people will message me being like, are you going to reopen moi? (laughs) Because I closed it on its 10th anniversary. So at that point, I was like, hang on a minute. Everyone wants this business. People are finding me really like a good story. There was a lot of interview requests all the time. I was like, I guess I have to do this. So that's when I started like working on the products, thinking about opening more salons, like what should I do next? But again, I didn't have a strategy. If I'm honest, I had no mentor. I had no one who was like, hey, Sham, you've got this really great brand, really great vision. Here are all the ways that you could take it forward. This is the investment you'll need. This is how you should spend it, like zilch. So when it came to art, I was kind of just riding this wave and I had a burnout period and I actually went back to my hometown for 18 months to kind of like recover. And um, during that time, I was very reflective. I thought, what this was, I think, six years into the business. At that point, I was like, what parts of this journey have I really, no, not six years, actually, because my son was three. So let's say four years I was like, which parts of the journey have I truly enjoyed? Which parts have I been able to be successful in where competitors haven't? I was like, where do I get the most pleasure and, you know, inspiration from, et cetera, et cetera. And I did a lot of like reflective exercises during that year on this. What I learned was I absolutely loved watching women grow. Like I loved a woman coming into the salon who'd never done nails before learned how to do nails and essentially had a job and could put food on the table. Like I love seeing that progression. I love seeing the customers who come in because we attracted, as I'm sure you can imagine a high quality customer who was usually a woman in London who was doing stuff. You know, she was like a film producer or a fashion designer. And I just love that we were plugged in to almost every area of London society through them being a client in the, in the shop. Um, I also loved that we were really early adopters of social media. So I used Tumblr, first Facebook, then Tumblr, then Instagram to promote our brand from day one. And that's what made us famous. And I was just very, very good at storytelling on social. This is before obviously it became a big money-making machine and like algorithms and stuff. But I was very adept at like taking photographs of our work and using those photographs and sharing them in networked environments like Tumblr and Instagram to essentially Mm -hmm. propel our brand forward. So I was like, right, why don't I build a system that allows other girls to do that? So instead of me, I tell you what I hated, I hated having employees who I could only ever pay like 15 pounds an hour or 12 pounds an hour because that didn't sit right with me, but that's the market. That's the nature of the salon market. Mm. You can't pay them more than that, but some like there's no progression for women if they work in a salon. So I was like, how can I let all of these girls run their own businesses? How can I use technology in a way that we have? 
and how can I create a network of beauty junkies rather than just having like clients and stuff so that's when I came and then finally and the big one for me was how can I increase my chances of equity and success in the business world which you I felt like I couldn't do with the salon because I didn't want to grow it into a giant salon chain or have a product line in supermarkets. And I thought technology, the thing I love about the startup world is it was like it was a great leveler and a fast track for someone like me who hadn't come from like a finance or a consulting background. It was like a fast track way for me to kind of level up my knowledge, my income and essentially my influence within women women in Britain so then I was like right I'm going to move back to London and I'm going to start a startup wow and that's a very long answer (laughs) no I love it and then so that's the idea for beauty stack which you founded in 2017 that's incredible I never heard the story actually um told this way so how did you find it at at the very beginning so you moved from a very I guess, difficult to scale business, really centered around you as a person to something that fundamentally is more of a platform, very purpose-driven and much more scalable. So how did you find it at the beginning? And all of a sudden, I guess, you had to focus on technology, which you focused on previously, but in a different way. And also from a funding perspective, how did you raise money at the beginning? So I've always been a tech person. I've always been obsessed in the same way that I was obsessed with my cable box. I've always been curious about like technology and media, etc. And I went to a really super techie school. It was a city technology college and every child had a laptop from age 11 and you'd have typing lessons and business lessons. Like I'd have a three hour business lesson every week from age 11 till 16 you know, I've had my same Hotmail address, which they helped me set up in 1997 or eight or something. So, you know, even though it wasn't at the forefront of my kind of personal brand, technology was a great driver for me. And I also taught myself InDesign and Photoshop when I was like 19. So I was very much like that kind of person who could easily like start a blog or create a channel or do you know do something digitally media based but in that 18 months what I had to learn was more like the history of high technology and of startups and I just devoured every book and podcast and you know got plenty more time in Wolverhampton so I essentially gave myself (laughs) like a mini MBA it's it's the same kind of spirit of when I was growing up. No one told me that I couldn't be anything or do anything right. When I was starting WAR, people, the interviewers and journalists used to ask me, what's it like to start a business? And then later on, when feminism became cool, they used to say, what's it like to be a woman in business? Right. And then later on, when race became an issue, they would say, what's it like to be a black woman in business? And the difference is, is that I'd never, ever asked myself those questions. Mm. So I hadn't even considered the limitations before. So when I moved to London, I was very confident and sure that I had a unique role in beauty booking marketplaces. Um, Not marketplace, actually, I'll tell you about that, but in beauty booking, which I thought that I had a different perspective on because I'd actually ran a, a beauty business. So what I did was when I moved back to London, I would go to Google campus every week. I would be on meetup.com all the time. I would go to like random places. Like for example, I remember going to a talk in Smithfield market in East Poultry about computer vision. And I would just go and listen. And I did that for about two years. I would go to talks on like AI bots computer vision you know pitch nights and demo nights and I would just went and I would always be by myself by the way I would go by myself and I'd be the fashion girl black fashion girl in the back of the room that looked completely different and I didn't really network I would just go and get my information and then leave and from doing that I just kept thinking I can do this if that if that dude can do it I can do it (laughs) so then I knew This is probably less relevant, but also possibly interesting to any of your listeners who feel that they don't look and look like, you know, a typical founder. Like what I would do 
is I decided that to move myself from a beauty business, a beauty founder to a tech founder, I would have to help people understand what I'm trying to do through a series of small projects about driving beauty forward with tech. So I actually did two small things. Firstly, I did, I worked with a company that had just launched, actually. I was like one of their pilot customers, where together we built a really amazing chatbot for booking beauty. So you could text a number and it was plugged in to our booking systems API and you could basically have a little chatbot, you know, book your appointment for you and it worked incredibly well. The second thing I did was I built a VR experience where you tried on nail designs um, wow. before you got them. And this is because at the time everyone was obsessed with VR, but it was always like shooting games or golf or whatever. And I was like, if more girls are in technology, we'll have a more wider range of tech experiences. So I built this VR thing. And what those two projects did was help people understand that I understood technology and I understood how to build products. And then when I did my pitch for beauty stack, my initial thesis was that I truly believed that women would have a higher conversion to book from an image rather than a string of text in a networked environment rather than a flat directory. Like, Mm. You know, all, all beauty booking systems right now are flat directories. They are, they're marketplaces, but like flat. So like if I booked a haircut, you would never know about it. You couldn't follow my profile. There's no concept of usernames. There's no concept of liking, commenting. You know, the, the marketplaces of the past are very much like, here's a list, here are reviews, here's how you sort them. But they're not like networked effect, which is, here's a girl in your network who's been to this salon. Why don't you look at her picture of her finished result and then use that information to make your next booking decision? And that's what I thought. So my two, the two points of difference for beauty stack is we're completely visual. You have to click a picture and book it. Second thing is, is it's networked. So we take social mechanics you know, as I said, the con- like even the fact is most booking systems don't give you like a username and you've got, if I go to booking.com, I can't see all the hotels in Prague that my friends have stayed at, for example, which would mm-hmm. edge me further towards booking something immediately because there's the trust element. So that's what I wanted to bring. It's like social mechanics, peer group, recommendations and visual in the booking environment. And I do believe in the future it will be applied to travel, to food, to everything else. It's like my friends have all done this. They rated it high. So I automatically am going to rate it high. Yeah, it's an um, amazing point. It's definitely coming, So that, yeah. that was really, really key for me. And even when we started Beauty Stat, like Delivery didn't have pictures of its food, you know, but I always used to say when you go to a Chinese restaurant, you can see the pictures and you know what you're getting when you don't understand Mm -hmm. it. And like, why isn't everything got pictures in? Why are the biggest companies in the world today based on pictures, but we're not got that concept in a service based marketplace. However, what I didn't understand, and it's funny because I always like looking back at like my mistakes. I was so focused on that specific thesis that once we'd proved it, which was really quickly, actually, within about six months, well, within four months, we'd built a prototype on web. And seven months after that, we generated like double digit, like um, merchandise value in our early test Mm. group using it. And we were like, oh, this really works. And then I was like, what now? (laughs) Actually, (laughs) I didn't. Here's the things I had no clue about. I had no clue about marketplace dynamics. Hadn't even occurred to me I was building a marketplace. Can you believe that? Didn't even realize. I didn't know anything about performance marketing and still don't yet. But I was just so intent on the mission and that original thesis that It was actually quite easy to raise money because I had strong conviction and theory behind what I was doing. It's like what I said earlier, I always like to read and research and then put that into my work. So it just meant that when I was pitching, I could clearly articulate like 
what my vision for the future was and where I thought this could go. However, once I'd raised that money, it got so hard. <laughs> it got so hard. I didn't know how to spend it. I didn't know how to hire. There were so many different people telling me different things. You suddenly like um, conflicting opinions between different sources and advisors. And I just, the first few months after raising money, I was on a high. So let's say the first quarter. The second two, I was just a complete mess stressed overwhelmed overloaded I didn't really know what I was doing if I'm honest I was so adamant that I didn't want to build a business where we had to spend like you know 40 percent of our fundraise on um ads mm. I was like committed to like no I believe we can build a viral loop through this network but we kept it closed while we were still building it testing it out and then when we opened it to the public it was like in the middle of covid so it's been a really interesting journey and I've learned so much, but I would never trade it because this is sick. Like it's such a privilege to create a business, to employ people, to provide a service to people. It's like the fastest self-development course you will ever do in your life. It Every chapter of my life, I kind of, treat it as an experiment for giving me intel on the type of life I want to live you know it's an amazing so it's way like, to put it yeah it's like the first few years made me think oh I love this part I love sitting around at a small table with people like two pizza all coming up with ideas building the first thing you know what I don't like I don't like hiring loads of people in one go in a way when before I've even developed what my principles are I like taking time over my principles before operation there's all these little things where I'm just calibrating and codifying mm. what my principles are and the way that I like to work and you know the challenge is beauty stack being that experience of helping me learn about business, about startups, about my life principles, but also wanting to build a really successful commercial business. It's like, you know, with WAR, it was something that I felt I couldn't scale. Well, this is an opportunity that I know could be a global, mm. you know, a global product. Like it could be like an Airbnb for booking services from women to women. And I just think the more support and like mentorship and clarity I have, with this business the more exciting it is for me like every day it's a powerful point and i mean shamadine 2020 was probably an enormously difficult year for the entire beauty industry how did you personally build resilience you know you mentioned your burnout before how did you keep sane like do you have daily habits what can you kind of share it was the great leveler, wasn't it? Because it was the first time where I felt just as susceptible to low confidence as anyone else. Whereas previously, I'd always had incredibly high self-belief and self-confidence. There were so many different things that I did because it was like fully about constant triage on a day, almost daily basis. So it ranged from I did a lot of journaling list things that make me happy schedule like in my list of things that make me happy it's the most basic list which is like self family work health etc social I would make sure I scheduled in time for those things I would make sure I get a daily walk-in I'm actually so proud that since lockdown I'm sure this is applicable to many of your listeners a daily walk has become part of my practice my habit and that was something I never ever did before covid i also saw a lot of practitioners and professional help i think that no one should feel like they're alone in their stress and troubles and again that's a big thing with beauty stack is you know beauty professionals and wellness and therapists they all actually form this kind of public service of mental health that came through even more powerfully during lockdown that there's this need to have a space to talk so I would book everything from digital Reiki to executive. My coach is incredible. I had coaching the whole way through lockdown. 
I would go for whenever I could the gaps in between when I could have a massage I'd have a lot of massages which I think release a lot of toxic energy tension and also the physical touch is important and I just created a bit of a, an accountability group so every Monday at 9 30 I'm in a group with about 20 women where we all do a motivational half an hour on a Monday morning we do a few quotes so I host it and I will give them some productivity tips I'll give them a few motivational quotes usually a thought for the week and then set everyone off on their way and it was, it's just those like mm. checking points of group therapy that I think are actually critical to our survival going forward because this is going to be going on for ages is we're not done you know it feels this way yeah wow um i love the accountability group point i'm also journaling on a daily basis trying to schedule stuff that makes me happy i've worked with seven coaches in the last couple of years but i've never had the accountability group so i love that idea and i just want to pick up one of the comments you made earlier when you said that all of a sudden you became the person you know, that's the woman in business, that's the black woman in business. How did this make you feel? I just want to hear from you. What did it trigger, I guess? And how do you feel about this today? I actually think that there is a fine line to be drawn between ignorance and naivety. I've always said that it's my naivety that made me feel fearless. You know, it's a bit like a child who doesn't know that their bones can break just jumping off the wall and doing their thing. They're not bothered about risk, right? And the problem is, is when you tell someone, you remind someone of their limitations, they actually become that before they even thought about it themselves. And I think that, like, I've got a son, you know, a nine-year-old son. He's mixed race. I have a thing where I, I'm like, even as I'm thinking about it now, I'm like, how much do I tell him about our history and our past as black people in Britain? And how much do I just let him live? Mm. How much do I let him just be? Because I would say that the more education I learned about, like I said, about gender studies, about the oppression of women, about the oppression of black people, actually the more I felt a huge burden of responsibility that at times is a really powerful driving force. It makes me want to succeed so much, but at the other time is incredibly like a weight, like a huge weight on my mm -hmm. shoulders. So I would say that with the Black Lives Matter protests over the summer last year, a lot of people were calling me asking for me to comment on things when mm. I'm not an expert on race beyond my own experience in a way where I understand more the theory behind gender, you know, because I feel like gender, no matter what race you are, you know, women are repressed in every race, like in every way. So I just, I guess my answer to your question is probably like, it made me feel limitations that I hadn't previously thought about. Mm. And I would love to kind of exist in a world where when people ask me like how I did it, it's not like how I did it like as a black woman. No, they're literally, they literally want to know like what were the exact steps you took to grow your business into the thing it is today because i'm curious about that irrespective of color of gender etc but at the same time we need more conversation around it because some people are completely and wholly ignorant to it and i just think with all forms of change there has to be various levels of activism so there mm. should be conversations there should be talking about it my method of change is through business through having a very visible presence, which is why you'll always see me out and about and doing interviews by being visible and helping people see me. And whether it's someone who might think that I can do that because she looks like me or someone who thinks, oh, okay, so here are more, there are more black women who are completely 
amazing and successful and capable business. So yeah, that's my form of my form is to do businesses, create spaces and change through business, politics and culture, I would say. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for sharing that insight on motivation, but also the burden. To me, your DNA is just huge inspiration, purpose, buckets full of energy, huge ideas, empowerment of women, you know, a huge voice of equality, storytelling ability. So I'm a massive, massive admirer of you. And I loved um, hearing your story today. Shamadine, what's the latest? What are you working on now? So I'm really, really excited to actually come full circle with my background, which is in publishing and media and magazines. And we're actually launching a brand new women's media publication called The Stack. What we found during the pandemic, in fact, to be honest, during the whole 15 years I've been doing women's related work, is that it's now time for me to move beyond beauty and share resources and recommendations and information about the things that I think is important for a woman today so typically a women's magazine will have sections such as fashion and shopping and celebrity and gossip and where I think women are at right now is they've gone kind of past understanding about gender equality understanding feminism and they've gained so much autonomy and power but are not quite sure where to direct it so What the stack is, is content through editorial on beauty, business and culture. Within the culture, it will be the politics and within beauty, we'll also have wellness. So it will be editorial and we use conversations and accountability groups and talking circles to drive content for that. And then once you've read an article and then you've joined a discussion about it, you can book an expert one-to-one -one on beauty stack as you can do today so I'm really thinking more and more about what the future relationship between publishing social and commerce is and how we can essentially create a loop between those three things to you know essentially create a marketplace for women's services and products all over the world wow and is that still under beauty stack so it's called the stack world and the if you think of the stack world as like the shop window and then beauty stack as the till or the cash register it's like the stack world provides context to all of the services that we have so for example there might be a sex therapist on beauty stack that you can book for a one-to-one -one consultation but you might want to read an article about someone like what is sex therapy you know why would you need it What's it for? And then you might want to attend a group of 20 women all talking about their traumas and why they want to try out therapy, you know? And then that, the, all of this bonds you to the brand of the stack world of Beauty Stack and keeps you thinking about Beauty Stack as top of mind for when you require uh, a service that's going to improve yourself, whether it's from a self-development, a, a beauty self, a self-mastery, like that's where I think the future of women's services will be.